do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Bible. I'm going to jump right in. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 6, um, and then flip backwards to Genesis. I'm actually going to start in Genesis chapter 3 briefly this morning. And uh, so if you could have your kind of your fingers in both places, I would encourage you to get your note sheet out. You just remember more of the stuff you write down. So take some notes, okay? Um, and if you don't have a Bible, hopefully there's one in a chair in front of you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, take one, that one with you, okay? We would love for you to have a copy of the Word of God, especially if you'll read it on a regular basis. I'm going to be really honest with you. This is a uh, little bit of a weighty sermon, and it's been hard to preach twice. So uh, to preach it a third time on my own spirit, has it's a little bit of weight. So I'm going to do the best I can, okay? Um, so this sermon is geared uh, towards Christians, because that's who John is writing to here, okay? So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're here today, man, we are thrilled that you, I'm so thrilled you're here. And, uh, and but I, please know, you're, I'm glad you're here. You're not my target audience. My target audience is those who say, man, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, okay? And, uh, and so with that as set up, you're like, what is he gonna say, you know? So, uh, so here we go, all right? How, ma- how many of you have heard of the name, James Marshall. James Marshall in 1848 uh, was building a sawmill in California and in the river where he was building the sawmill, he discovered something. Anybody know what he discovered? He discovered gold, right? And so, and if you can even imagine in a world where there's no internet, there's no social media, uh, those kind of things that word got out across America, and there was this thing called a gold rush. So much so uh, that I don't even know th- hundreds of thousands of people descended on California in 1849. To which we get the worst NFL team in the NFL, the San Francisco 49ers, right? And uh, we hate them. Sports hate, sports hate. Okay, it's a different kind of hate. Uh, so anyway, so, and so, I mean, people were uprooting their lives and selling everything to take the risk to get to California, stake a claim in a river somewhere, uh, with the hopes of striking it rich. And it was a, it was kind of a, the type of risk that it was like a all in bet. Like if it doesn't work out, you could be impoverished, but if it works out, man, you could be wealthy beyond your wildest dreams and your wildest imagination. And people rushed to California for the gold rush to find gold. The problem was a lot of miners were finding a different kind of metal, a metal that's called iron pyrite. Anybody know what that is known as? Fool's gold, right? And so they were finding fool's gold, thinking they were wealthy, 
And so there were some tests that they would do to see if what they found was iron or if it was actual gold, okay? And, and so one of the tests is they would bite on it because gold is softer than iron, okay? Or they would get what's called white stone and they would rub it on white stone and gold would actually leave a gold streak and iron pyrite would leave either a black or a greenish color. And so there were tests to see if what they had was real gold. One of the challenges that John is giving the church in this text this morning is for us as Christians to not be gullible, spiritually gullible, to have theological discernment around teachers. Not everything that looks like gold is gold. Not everything that Glitters is gold. Not everything that has the word Christian on it is Christian. Not every book on Amazon, not every internet site or everything played on the radio. We, we are to have a spiritual discernment to see if what we're believing is true. And by the way, uh, there's something way more at stake here than riches of gold. Eternity is at stake. Like John is writing and he's saying these false prophets, they went out from us and they are not Christians. And they are deceiving people in such a way that their souls will be captive in hell for all of eternity. Like what we're going to talk about today is of the utmost importance. The ability to discern truth from error. And I think that American Christians are especially notorious for getting overly excited about a new craze or a new celebrity Christian or a new book or, man, this person that I know is on The View or on a particular uh, TV show, and we don't think critically, and it drives me nuts. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you why I think we get so excited about celebrity Christians. You ready? I think there's two reasons we get excited about celebrity Christians. Number one, I don't think we're actually satisfied nearly enough or wowed nearly enough with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that somehow loses its wonder with us, the fact that God would take on flesh and set foot on our planet. Amazing, right? That should never lose its wonder with us. Did you know that for all of eternity, Jesus Christ is going to have a glorified body? That's how much he loved you and intervened on your behalf and on my behalf. And I think we're generally not wowed nearly enough with the gospel of Jesus. The second reason I think we get as Christian, American Christians get wowed by Christian celebrity is we're not nearly involved enough in our local churches. It's, in other words, I'm sitting here this morning preaching this, many of you, and I know many of your stories, and I know that you have had a really tough year. You've buried a loved one. You've buried a child. You've been disowned by your family because you're a Christian. Yet in the midst of suffering, you have a health crisis that you don't even know if you're going to survive. Yet in the middle of your crisis, you gather corporately every single Sunday and worship the Lord. 
Every single week, you're involved in the ministries of Coastal, making disciples for the next generation. Can I just say, I don't need a celebrity Christian. I'm wowed by what's happening right here in this body. Amen? I'm wowed by you people. I'm wowed that you give your time, your talent, and your treasure. I don't need somebody showing up on Anderson Cooper for me to be excited. Amen? I'm excited by what's happening here. I want to pull out a couple truths this morning that John encourages us to not be gullible as Christians, to be not be thoughtful enough to spot theological deception and, and to be wowed by the truth of the gospel. So point number one, I want to go all the way back to Genesis. The attacks of Satan on God and his word. So what John is writing about actually goes all the way back to Genesis 3 when the first sin enters the planet and the temptation of Satan himself to Adam and Eve. So check this out in Genesis 3, verse 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Let me pause here for a minute. God did not say that last part. God said you can't eat of the tree, but he didn't say you shouldn't touch it. That's legalism. Legalism is as dangerous as disobedience, actually. Did God say, Verse 3, but you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you will die, Eve says. In verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Three pieces here of the temptation that Satan brings to Eve, the serpent brings to Eve. Letter A is he has her doubt the word of God. Did God say? I mean, did God really say that? Is there something else that this could mean? Then it's denial. Satan tempts Eve with denying the word of God. You die, you will not die. You shall not surely die. And then the third one, and this one is sometimes the toughest to figure out. It's deception. He tries to deceive Eve, right? So he says, for God knows. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. In other words, the tempter is saying that God is holding out on you. There's actually something in the Godhead that's better that he has that you don't have. And it's a subtle deception. And I would suggest to you that sometimes doubt and denial are easier to spot than deception. And I think that John here in chapter 4 of 1 John is addressing that Christians should be attuned to the ability of Satan to deceive Christians and deceive the church. Satan is not only opposed to the church. Satan is also out to deceive the church. And we need to be theologically astute to know the word of God so that we are not easily deceived. Amen, church? Okay, good. So here it is, point number two, or point number one around what, in, for in John, but it's point number two. John commands us as a church to test things, to test teaching, okay? He commands us to test, 1 John 4, 1. He says, beloved, do not be deceived, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see 
whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. John here is reminding this church that not every teacher and every teaching, just because it has the word Christian on it, is from God. John is dealing with the idea of deceptions. Now, Christians need to avoid the extremes, right? Like, like the one extreme is that we can be gullible and believe everything. And the other extreme is that we become suspicious and believe no one, right? And so, you know, we're to test things and see if it measures up. And he gives us the measure in a few verses, but I'll spoiler alert. Uh, the measure is the word of God, right? That uh, they're teaching God in his word. The second thing that John says about a teacher, one of the tests that we can know if someone is a true teacher is number three, does the person profess Christ? Now this may seem very simple and obvious, but I want to circle back in a minute and say why I think we should be very cautious and very centered on the idea of does a person actually teach Jesus as the Christ. Check this out, 1 John 4, 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ, by the way, Christ is not Jesus' last name. And it's certainly not a swear word. Jesus Christ, the word Christ is a title when the word Christ is used, there's, we're, the, the authors of the New Testament are saying something very specific about Jesus. They are declaring that he is the Messiah. He is the one that all of the Old Testament pointed to that has been sent to deliver us from our greatest need, which is to deliver us from our sin. He is the anointed one is what that title means. Jesus the Christ John says, has come in the flesh and is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world. John is saying there are some essential doctrinal tests that we should expect that Christian teachers and preachers hold to. One of the things that we do at Coastal, and and specifically here, what John is referring to, I'm going to use a big theological word. It's the word Christology. What a person believes about the person and the work of Christ is essential to them being a true teacher. I would take it one step further, and I would even say, I think this even bridges over into the what you believe about the doctrine of the Trinity. It is the doctrine of the Trinity that got Jesus crucified. By the Jews, you being a man, you're claiming to be God. Yes, yes I am, right? That's a radically transformative position for Jesus to take. Amen, church? Like this is, he's not just a prophet. You know, at Coastal, when we do leadership training, one of the things that we do in our leadership training is we hand you a systematic theology that's about 1,200 pages, right? And we hand this to you and go, you're going to read this. And you may say, why, why do we do that? There's a couple of reasons. Number one, we want the leaders of this church to be clear what our essentials are. 
are essential doctrines that you can test and make sure that your pastors and your leaders and your teachers are teaching the essentials. Amen? And we want our leaders to know that and be grounded in that so that, especially as our church grows and we go multi-site, we want our leaders to go, man, we want to guard the teaching of this church that it's Christocentric and that it's got its Christology right and it's got the doctrine of the Godhead right because the way we live and what we do all stems with what we believe. Yes? So you got to have that right. The second the reason we go through this big old book is we then talk about tier two issues. Not tier one. They're not our eight essentials. They're our tier two issues. But where does Coastal land on these tier two issues so that we can work together in unity? And we say, this is where Coastal lands, and then you can decide if this is the church for you or not. Right? But we're united even around our tier two issues. And so John is saying, like, man, a teacher should be making much of Christ. Amen? If a teacher, and we see this a lot in American churches where a, a whole ministry can be built on making you the hero of your story. You're not the hero of your story. Jesus is the hero of the story. Amen? Yeah, the other services didn't get this. This is a side note for you guys. Okay, so I remember years ago I was doing a funeral. It was a like extended, it wasn't somebody that regularly attended Coastal, but I was asked to do it, so I come and do the funeral. And there was some country song played about this person in the past, um, about heaven needed a hero, so God brought you home. Is that a country song? Any, like, there's got, anybody want to sing it for me? Anyway, so this song gets played, and my mind, like, I start breaking out in hives as I'm sitting there, right? And so I uncomfortably got up and said, um, uh, granddad's not the heaven's hero. Jesus is heaven's hero. I didn't say it quite that bluntly, but you got the picture, right? Like Jesus is the hero of the story. Amen. And a ministry needs to be focused on Jesus being the hero of the story. I even have seen ministries built on moralistic or imbalanced teachings of Jesus. Like a ministry will spend its focus on grace, 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 grace. Is the gospel a gospel of grace? You're like, I'm not sure. Is he going to call me out? The answer is yes, it is a gospel of grace. But in John chapter 1, verse 13, Jesus was full of grace and what? Truth, law. Holiness. Jesus is both. Like, we have to preach both. And if we get out of balance, we're not preaching the gospel rightly so that people have a proper understanding. And so Christians discern differently, right? Point number four, because Christians cling to Christ and his teaching. A Christian clings to Christ and his teaching. John says, listen, we got to be attuned to Christ and his teaching. First John 3, 4, little children... You are from God and have overcome them, these false teachers. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I read a statistic this week. It's just incredibly disturbing. It was a statistic about American evangelical Christians. Okay, so it's a very specific 
question, right? So I would suggest to you that most people in America that identify as evangelical Christians would be people that say they're Bible-believing. At least that's how I read that, right? A Bible-believing Christian. 67%, two out of three, evangelical Christians in America say that worship from other religions is acceptable worship to God. I didn't hear enough groans. So let me say that again, okay? 67% of evangelicals believe that worship from other religions is acceptable worship to God. It's half-hearted. Some of you are like, I don't know. Now listen, it's really no laughing matter. It's really no laughing matter. And, And Islam... Buddhism, Hinduism, humanism, which is a religion, by the way, atheism, which is a religion, by the way, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and certainly I'm leaving out plenty. They are false religions that are leading people to hell for all of eternity. There is only one way to get to heaven, and it's through Christ. A Christian, I'm torn between cannot and should not. A Christian can't believe that all paths lead to heaven. And the reason 67% of evangelicals believe that is they've let the world influence their thinking and not the word of God. That's why. Probably. We're probably not even reading the Word of God enough to even know. So we're being influenced by the media and the culture. And if you're uncomfortable with what I just said, if I what I said, and the reason you couldn't go, mm, man, that's disturbing, and because because you weren't sure, it's really it's really uh, you ready for this? It's really for you. Do you believe that the Word of God is objectively true? Now I chose a very important word there: objective. That means it's not subjective. What is the culture teaching us? And you want to be happy, you need to live your, what? Your own truth. It's not what the Bible teaches. That's subjective. That's you, me. We may have different worldviews at that point that are competing, not the same. There's no such thing as your truth. There's the truth, and it's objective, and it's true for all times and for all peoples and for all of eternity. The Bible says that the word of God will not return void. Not one jot or tittle, that's like the smallest letters in the Hebrews and the Greeks alphabet will pass away. Like the word of God is objectively true forever and ever and ever. And some of you are struggling with the statement that I said that Christians should not and cannot believe that all paths lead to God. You're struggling that because you're really wrestling with the word of God. Because the word of God says this about Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. It's not Buddha. not Muhammad. It's Christ alone. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And what, church? Some of you guys know this. No man what comes to the Father except through. Those are exclusive claims. So guess what? Some of you are like, man, Sean, why are you being? Here's the deal. You ready? You're here. You're a Christian. You have 80 or 90 years on the planet. And there are other people that are locked in lies 
that don't know the freedom that you know. And so God has left us here to use our time, talent, and treasure to do all that we can to promote the gospel across the globe. Amen? And some of us are sitting on our time, talent, and treasure. When we come to church, and go, man, that was a good service. I really enjoyed it. Or it wasn't a good service. Man, that guy was off key. And Pastor Song went on and on and on. Like, no funny stories today. Like, I don't know. It's just not really for me. No, a church is about us pulling our time, talent, and treasure together so that we can better promote the gospel of Jesus Christ around the globe until our day, the day that our faith becomes sight. You have an 80 or 90 year assignment, and then you go rest in peace. Amen? We need to be serious about this. Listen, the reason the world is opposed to you as a Christian, it should not be surprising because the case that John has been making is the world was opposed to Christ. Christ is in you. So it would be natural for the world to be opposed to you, right? And, and I think Americans, like we, um, we're having a weird journey right now, right? Especially if you're my age or older, because my age or older has enjoyed a much friendlier culture to conservative Bible-believing Christianity. When I use the word conservative, I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about what you believe about the Bible. Um, and it's enjoyed that, and the culture has quickly pivoted, right, where there feels like there's pressure around what we believe as Christians. And I think our brothers and sisters in China are probably laughing at us, like, We've just been that way the whole time. We've been a follower of Jesus. Amen? All right? So, and Jesus told us this. He said in John chapter 16, verse 33, he said, I've said these things to you. Check this out. John 16, 33. I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. By the way, you just sang this. I don't know if you picked up the one of the lines you sang, that I'm going to stand for the Lord and if it costs me being thrown into the fire, right, I, I have peace. Why? Because you'll be there too. What's he talking? He's talking about Shadrach, Meshach. We're singing about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And Nebuchadnezzar said, he bowed down to me, or he get thrown into the fire. I said, no, we can't do that. We believe in the one true and living God. And Nebuchadnezzar, what you need to know is he can deliver us if he wants to, but even if he doesn't, he's still God. We can't bow to you right? And so they get thrown into the fire, and here's what you're saying about. He'll eat, Jesus will show up and either deliver you or give you peace in the suffering. Amen? That's what Jesus is talking about. It's the Lion of Judah you're just saying about. He, he is there to defend you when it gets hard. I've said these things to you, John 16, 33, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, church, I have overcome the world. Which leads to point number four, false teachers cling to worldly principles and worldly behaviors. False teachers, John says, one of the tests, we can see they cling to worldly principles and worldly behaviors. They're, they're from the world, 1 John 4, 5. They're from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. A, a, a false teacher, I really believe, desires deeply the applause of the world rather than the applause of the heavens, the applause of our God. Jesus, in John chapter 6, verse 8, he's at the peak of his popularity, right? He's so popular. Crowds are coming to hear him. And you would think that that would be the time Jesus would take up an offering, you know, build a big building or something. You know what he does? 
he like doubles down on the idea of how invested you have to be in following him. And he does it by saying, hey, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And everyone's like, this is really weird. Why is he getting weird? Even the disciples are like, why is he got to get weird now? Like, look at all these people, you know? And, and people start leaving because it got hard. I think a false teacher, man, they, they love the applause of men and, and, and it's subtle, right? And, and, and I'm just going to tell you, like, I get really skeptical of large church pastors that end up on TV or on The View on a, on a show that they know that the show disagrees with their world, their biblical worldview. And they go on the show and they get, get asked a really uncomfortable question about gay marriage. Instead of answering with a firmness of the scripture, they start to squirm. And they start to soften it. And by the time they get to talking, like, I don't really even know what they believe, what the Bible teaches about this, right? And I always watch it. I'm like, why did you even go on the show? Are you there for you? Are you there to promote the gospel? Amen, anybody? You guys away? Like, I don't really know what's happening there. Like, why did you do that? Is it just because you want the applause of men and you want to spend your, like you knew that question was coming. Like you, you had, you should have been prepared for it more than just muddy the waters. Listen, what John is saying is false teachers love the applause of the world and eventually their behaviors will look like the world. They'll, they'll walk in sin instead of in holiness because here's the deal, you Ready? What we do in our actions reveals what we believe about the word of God. Amen? Okay, ready? I'm going to go from preaching to meddling. Some of you in this room are not tithing to this local church because you don't believe the Bible. Yes, I do. I'll tell you, go home and read Malachi 3 today, man. It will encourage you. It will encourage you. God says, tithe, give a tenth to your storehouse and see if I don't bless your socks off. The reason you're not tithing is you don't really believe God can bless you and make up the difference. Oh God, I'm going to stand for you even if I get thrown into the fire. Just don't touch my checkbook. I know, I'm meddling now. Okay. Man, false teachers, man, they have this strong desire to be received by the world and eventually their actions bear themselves out. Years ago, um, there was a, I'm not going to use his name, there was a well-known pastor in, um, and this is why I'm talking about this today, like I, it's my job to help protect Coastal. Um, there was a well-known pastor in Florida that was, in my humble opinion, mixing key doctrines, and it was confusing people. So if you remember a couple years, a couple weeks ago, I talked about the process of salvation. I said, when we repent of our sin and we believe in Jesus, the first thing that happens theologically in this doctrine of salvation is we're the doctrine of justification, right? We're declared righteous. The perfect works of Jesus Christ get credited to our spiritual bank account, if you will, by grace through faith. So therefore, you're in the family. God sees you as perfect. On judgment day, you will be judged based on the, on the righteousness of Christ gifted to you by grace through faith. However, the second step of this salvation process is this process called what? Anybody remember? 
sanctification. We're growing in holiness and righteousness. Now that we're in Christ, Christ is in us. We're becoming more like Christ. It's a process. We're not perfect. And when someone calls out sin in our lives, we hate our sin because we love Jesus and we're working on this process. And we're going to be sinners even though we're battling it, we're freed from its dominion, but not free from its influence. And so we're battling our sin all the way till we get to heaven and heaven is called what? Anybody remember? Glorification. And glorification, man, we'll be fully and finally free from our sin. We'll be, as John said, we'll be like Christ. It's gonna be an awesome. It should whet your appetite and make you long for your heavenly home, okay? And, but this teacher in Florida who had, uh, he was a grandson of a very well-known evangelist. Again, I'm not gonna say his name, but he, he, he was trumping justification with sanctification and he was never talking about sanctification. And therefore everything was grace, 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 grace. And so he was having influence on some of the small groups here at Coastal. And every time I would preach and I would use the word doing or being or improving or discipling or disciplining or efforting, I literally, I would get emails from these small groups, right? And Pastor Andrew got some too, and we'd get these emails. And it was like, man, and, and I realized like, man, this, this person's that. And so I started digging into their theology and I realized, man, they didn't have a doctrine of sanctification. They only, and I would go to our small groups and say, they don't have a doctrine of sanctification, it's only justification. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter six. So in Romans chapter five, he talks about how God has given us grace, but man, there's a doctrine of sanctification. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Like we can talk about sin, we can talk about efforting. I said, grace is not a opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Our righteousness has been earned for us, but now in process, we're discipling, we're disciplining ourselves, we're efforting to grow in holiness and righteousness. This was happening over and over and over. And then, after a couple years of this, this pastor, his family totally dissolved as he fell into sexual sin, right? And, and here was my point in all that. What you believe eventually works itself out in your behaviors, and if you believe there's no room for efforting, holiness, accountability, because I still have my ability to sin, grace, 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 eventually you're gonna, your flesh will do what it wants to do without the appropriate guardrails. Amen, guys? You guys with me on that? Okay, and so, and so as a church, we should be discerning. And by the way, and I'm gonna talk about this in a couple weeks when we go through the book of Titus, you can expect from your leaders of Coastal, they should teach sound doctrine and they also should be 1 Timothy 3 character qualified. Amen. Amen. They're not perfect. And, if you conf- and when they're imperfect, you confront them on their sin, they should go, you know what? I am not, I hate that I did it. Forgive me and we move forward. But they should be 1 Timothy 3 qualified. We can expect that from our teachers. And finally, number six, number six here, six point. Finally, trusted teachers and preachers are committed to the word of God. That's what John's saying. Trusted preachers and teachers are committed to the word of God. So 1 John 4, 6, we're, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth, spirit of error. A true teacher of the scriptures is not slippery. I really believe this. Letter A, a true teacher of scripture is not slippery. I get really, really nervous when pastors and teachers get slippery around key doctrines. Listen, we don't, we don't need some new cool ideas or new slogans around the doctrine of the Trinity. 
The early church fleshed it out, and for the last 1,700 years, we've had a pretty good handle on what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Now, it's mysterious, and I can't explain away the mystery, but I don't need some pastor teacher to be slippery about it. And so, uh, man, here I go again. That's why I didn't want to preach this sermon three times. I, I do this with fear and trembling because I don't know these people but I, I have a responsibility to you guys as a church just to, like, hey, be cautious right now. Um, T.D. Jakes is um, a part of a denomination that actually has a false view of the Trinity. They believe in a thing called modalism. And uh, I'm not going to explain what modalism is, but he, uh, he's got a huge ministry, as many of you know, right? Lots of influence. I love it, man. I, when I hear him preach, man, I love the whole towel and the sweat thing. I love that, man. I'm like, yeah, go. But, but I've seen him interviewed by pastors that I trust, asking him specifically about the tr- doctrine of the Trinity, and it just got slippery. I didn't know what he was saying. And he, he kind of redef- he used words I'd never heard used around the doctrine of the Trinity. And at the end, I was just like, just tell us what you believe so that I can decide whether or not I want to buy your book. Right? Andy Stanley saying some things that I, I have lots of red flags up right now. Okay? Uh, he's just saying, there's a couple of things that he's spoken about. Where I'm like, I, Andy, tell me what you believe about gay marriage specifically. Because you're, it's getting slippery. How would you believe? What do you think the Bible teaches about that issue? And I'm just throwing, and I, man, I say that because I don't know these guys. I'll never know them. You know, I'm a nobody, and they're all somebodies, and that's great. And they have lots of influence, and they're going to be held accountable for their influence. But, but, like, wow, like, tell me what you believe. Because Christians, let her be Christians, know Jesus' voice and Jesus' teaching. G- Christians know Jesus' voice, and they know Jesus' teaching. John chapter 10, verse 26. And, I'm, and the reason I'm going to the Gospel of John is J- the Apostle John's writing this letter and I think he's leaning heavily into the teachings of Jesus during his, the gospel that he wrote. But he says this in John chapter 10. But you do, not believe, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. I love verse 27 and the beginning of verse 28. Like this should really encourage you. Like what a beautiful statement of Christ. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. The God of the Bible in Christ knows you if you're one of his sheep. Am I the only one who thinks that's amazing? Okay, good, because you guys seem half asleep. I know it's warm in here. Here we go, ready? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. How many of you have seen Elf? Any Elf watchers? How excited was he when he found out Santa Claus was coming? What did he say? I know him! The God of the universe knows you. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Man, the sheep of Christ know his voice, and they know, let her see, the spirit of truth and error, which is the word of God. In John 17, um, John 17, Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer over his disciples. And this is what he says. 
as he's praying to, the, to his father about the disciples while they're there. He says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Okay, you ready? What's Jesus saying? This wraps into what we're learning about the apostle John and what John's been writing in 1 John. If you know Christ and Christ is in you, the world has rejected Christ. And if you know Christ, you know his words. Your sheep know my voice and you know his word. And therefore, if they reject the world rejected Christ, they're gonna reject you and your worldview. Everybody with me? I do not ask you. Now, here's what gets even more uncomfortable. Why doesn't Jesus just say, once they know you, take them to heaven? Because it could be hard here on earth. That's not what he says. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. By the way, what does the word sanctify mean? It means to make them holy. Make them holy in the truth. And then what's it say? Let's read this out loud together. Your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Listen, how do we know truth from error? It's the word of God. The reason 67% of evangelical Christians don't know that there's an exclusive claims that Jesus makes is the only way to heaven is because they don't know the word of God. We're not in the word. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands of how many of us spent 15 minutes this week reading the word of God. It's a great little story. I'll finish with this. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Great little story in Acts where Paul and Silas are on a missionary journey and they end up in a, in a city called Berea. And, uh, and so it starts, they're in uh, the beginning of 17, I think, or maybe it's the end of 16. It starts where Paul and Silas are in Thessalonica and they, they're pre, they go, what, the way they did missionary journeys to the Greek speaking world is they would start in a Jewish synagogue and it would preach to Jew, Jews that weren't yet Christians. They would preach the gospel of Jesus. And so they go into Thessalonica, they preach the gospel of Jesus. Some people get, some of these Jews get saved. They become Christians and the non-believers start stirring up trouble around Paul and Silas. Okay. And so in Thessalonica, they stir up trouble. And here it's really fascinating. The accusation against Paul and Silas is they're telling people that Caesar is no longer Lord and Jesus is now Lord. So they're pitting the gospel against the authorities of the government. By the way, just this week, I heard from a secular source that said Christians are, are pushing for world dominance, which I thought was fascinating. I'm like, there's nothing new under the sun. It's the same accusation against Paul and Silas. They're, te- they're threatening to throw off the governments, which is not true, right? It's a personal submission to the Lordship of Christ. And so they, Thessalonica, the people get spun up. They leave Thessalonica and they end up in a city called Berea. And they go to the synagogue and they preach the gospel. And this is what happens. And by the way, how many of y'all have ever driven by a church and it says Berean Bible Church or Berean Baptist? You ever seen that? Like, what a strange name, okay? 
kind of true, okay? But this is where it comes from. You ready? Acts 17, 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In other words, Paul and Silas come in, they're preaching the gospel, talking about how the Old Testament points to Jesus. The Bereans are checking their scriptures and saying, man, is this true? And Acts tells us, Luke, the author of Acts tells us, this was a noble thing to do. Everybody with me? And so as Christians, we should know the word enough to be deceived, not to be deceived. You guys with me on that? Okay, I told you this was a very teachy sermon, not a lot of takeaways, but here's the takeaway. I think I've spent a lot of time like, focusing on the bad. I want to finish by focusing on the good, okay? So sometimes in deception, we're like, man, let's check everything out. But there's a good side to being, in t- to being thorough because one of the things that we should do is treasure what is true. Everybody with me? How many of you guys have ever seen like the antique road show? You ever seen that where someone yeah. shows up, one antique road show or show up and like, yeah, I've had this glass in my closet, and you know it's worth a million dollars. You know, some guy shows up with a with a Afghan, a gang, you know, this big thing that's been sitting on his couch. He's like, yeah, you know, I've been on my couch forever, and the dog's wrapped in it, and the cat's peed on it twice, kind of thing. You know, he shows up, and they start doing this thing on this blanket, and they're like, well, you know, if you hadn't let the cat pee on it. 15 times, it'd be worth $50 million, but it's still worth a million bucks, you know? And you're like, man, I wish I'd taken better care of this blanket, you know, kind of thing. You ever, you ever seen that? Anybody? Yeah, good. Treasuring something you didn't even know was valuable. Here's what I want to, here's where I want to land the plane today. I want you, Coastal Church, yes, to be discerning, but above all, man, I want you to treasure Jesus Christ. We present the gospel every single week. And it's so easy for that to lose its wonder. God help us if the gospel ever loses its wonder. You ready? Jesus is God. What that means is Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity took on flesh. And on Christmas morning, we celebrate that he was born in a manger, in a feeding trough. It means that the son, that the God of the universe is not a distant God and he's not an uncaring God. And whatever you're going through, guess what? He doesn't immediately deliver us, but he will when our faith becomes sight and heaven's gonna be great. In the meantime, yes, it's difficult, but here's the deal. We don't have a distant God. Our God entered in. Jesus is God, not just a good prophet. He is the God man who set foot on the planet and he lived a life that none of us could. He lived a perfect life. Jesus is God, amen. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That means that your sin demands something from God. But Jesus took that punishment for you where he died on the cross through crucifixion, which is bloody and gross, which reminds us how much God hates your sin and he hates my sin. And He, his holy character demands wrath and punishment for sin. And you can bear it on yourself for all of eternity, or you can bow a knee right now to the Lordship of Christ. And therefore your sin and its punishment will be poured out on Jesus 
Jesus instead of you. And as he hung on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as he was paying the penalty for Sean Brown's sin so that I don't have to pay it? Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And then Jesus bodily rose from the grave, stepping out of his own tomb, defeating our full, our greatest enemy, death. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he is the first fruits of a great day of resurrection. The Bible says the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead when we repent of our sin and believe in him is now in us. So one day when you're kicking dirt on my grave, it is not going to be the last that you're going to see of Sean Brown because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. One day my soul will be reunited with a glorified body. It's going to look better than this one and it's going to live forever and ever and ever. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus bodily rose from the grave. What do I do with that gospel? What do I do with that information? We repent. Repentance is a really loaded word. It's simple. The, re- receiving the gospel is so simple yet so profound. To repent is to acknowledge something. It's to humble yourself. It's to say, I'm broken, needy. I deserve the wrath of God, but instead I can turn. I can declare. I can agree with God. God's called me a sinner. And I go, I sure am. And I'm going to turn from that and I'm going to repent, a 180 degree turn. And I'm going to believe. What am I going to believe? Not believe in what you want to believe, not your own truth. Believe in the truth truth of the gospel. Jesus is a God. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Jesus bodily rose from the grave. I believe in the core facts of the gospel and I receive Jesus into my heart and life and I let him and his words and his teaching transform me from the inside out. What do I want you to do this morning? What do I want you to treasure at the end of the day? I want you to treasure and exalt and magnify Jesus Christ above all else. Never let grow weary of hearing and believing and treasuring the gospel of Christ. It is everything to us, Coastal Church. Amen? Amen. All right. We're going to go out singing about that this morning. We're going to remind our hearts and our minds through song that Jesus Christ is to be magnified. I want to bring our prayer team up now. Uh, If you need prayer this morning and you had a tough week, you need somebody to pray with you of your circumstances, our prayer team is here for you. So it'll be up here on the screens. If you want to receive Christ, They are trained. They will talk to you about, man, how can you repent of sin and believe in Jesus? Let's bow our heads and pray. Let's go out singing. Heavenly Father, help us to be discerning, but also help us to be captivated by the treasure of Jesus. Man, Jesus is God. I mean, you didn't leave us in our mess. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. There's a penalty that my sin deserved, God, You paid it for me by giving us your best gift. And Jesus bodily rose from the grave, God, conquering the last and final enemy. So yes, 80 or 90 years, and Ecclesiastes says, we know we were created for eternity. He said eternity in our hearts, God. We know we were created for more than this. Every funeral, I'm reminded of that, God, that this is not natural. But Christ came to redeem what was broken, Jesus bodily rose from the grave. And, and the gospel is so simple, God, that it, if there's a child here today, they can repent and believe, and yet so profound that it requires that we humble ourselves and repent and believe and receive the gospel. May we always treasure that message. It's so life-changing. It's marriage-changing. It's cultural-changing. It's, it's child, it's parenting-changing. It changes everything. So help us to treasure Jesus Christ. And leave here today exalting him and him alone. And it's in Jesus' most precious name I pray.